the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode number 618, for Sunday, August 14th, 2016. <laughs> Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in, uh, well, you send us whatever you want, and then we talk about it on the show. Uh, hopefully, it's about Apple products, but you know, sometimes actually often we sort of venture outside that realm. The goal, of course, being for us all to learn at least four new things each and every time we get together. That's right. Longtime listeners will know that it used to be three. Now it's four because, you know, we got to raise the bar somehow here. And it's frankly a really easy way to do it. Uh, our sponsor for this episode is Bushel at bushel.com slash MGG mobile device management. And you can get three devices for free for life at that url we'll talk more about that later because it's a really really cool thing here in durham new hampshire i'm dave hamilton here in fairfield connecticut john f braun how goes it my my good friend john f braun i'm i'm just staying inside man all right they basically are telling us don't go outside it's it's bad well we've had we've had a uh a very uh, forgiving summer here in New England thus far. So to have, you know, a, a weekend or, or a little more full of rain and crazy weather is, uh, is something we're just going to need to accept. So uh, it's all good. And plus we got a podcast to do when I'm in here in the, uh, in the studio, because I also use this room for band practice. I have these inserts that we built that we put in the windows. They're like insulation sandwiches of, of all sorts of things packed into a wood frame that just perfectly fits in the, in the window. And, um, and so it blocks out all, well, not all sound, but quite a bit of sound. And of course, all light. So you could tell me that it was a bright shining, shining sun outside or torrential downpour. And I would believe you either way, because I have no way of visually confirming or refuting that. Right. Right. So let's go and do some, uh, some quick tips because that's what we're, that's what we're here for. Jacob says, uh, you'd been talking about some useful tips in one of your recent episodes with keyboard shortcuts and such. So I wanted to share a couple of useful things I found. Someone mentioned about using command one, command two, etc., to switch between mail tabs and safari tabs from the keyboard. A couple of the other things I found helpful are using the command and arrow keys, such as command and left acts like a home button and moves the cursor to the beginning of the current line command and right moves the cursor to the end of the current line. Same type of idea, command up and command down, moving to the top or bottom of the document. This also works in Safari, where command down takes you to the bottom of the web page. I love using this on sites where there are links that I know are in the bottom of the page, like apple.com, where the refurb links and stuff are at the bottom there. Uh, and I don't want to have to scroll forever to get to them. Also, the same point, you can use option and down or up to act as a page up or page down. Lastly, when typing and doing this, you can use command delete to delete everything to the left of your cursor on the current line or option delete to delete just the previous word. I find these really helpful when typing emails. I'm sure there are many more that I haven't uh, discovered yet or I'm forgetting, but just wanted to share these. Wow. 
Jacob, you might have hit like, you know, three of the four things we needed to learn in one fell swoop. Thank you, man. Very, very cool stuff. Anything on that one, John, or, or shall we, uh, shall we keep moving on to listener, John? Moving on. Moving on. All right. Listener, John writes somewhere. I'm going to find it. I swear. Uh Oh, Oh, I see where it is. Never mind. I thought. Yeah, right there. Uh, this is on a, a recent or perhaps not so recent Mac Keycap podcast. The uh, Mac OS X split view was brought up, brought up. I think Dave's son might have explained one way to do it. I found a second way, which I think is much easier. My full screen applications are separate desktops. I also have mission control set up in my lower right hot corner. In mission control view, uh, I have a banner at the top showing my desktops. Sometimes it's just a thin banner with a text label equal to the application name. If you place your cursor in the thin banner, the banner expands to show images of the desktop plus the text label. If I have two desktops and both are split view capable, you can drag one of the desktops in the banner and drag it over another desktop in the banner. And the Mac merges those two into split view. I don't think I heard this specific technique mentioned. So I wanted to share. That's very, very cool. Uh, I, I never realized that you could do that in the, uh, in the split view there or in the, uh, in the, in the, uh, the, the browser uh, bar, I guess is what we would call that in mission control. Very cool. Thank you, John. Good stuff. Moving on, John. Moving on. Moving on. All right. Uh, Adam posted on Facebook in our Facebook group, which you can find at macgeekgab.com slash Facebook. That's the easiest way to get there. And it is growing leaps and bounds. So uh, join the fun at any time. It would be great. Adam writes there. He says, uh, recently, John and Dave described how you can access the desktop version of a website in Safari for iOS using the button in the share sheet. There is a sneakier and faster way with the mobile version of the website open hold the refresh button in the address bar and presto. I also get the option to load the site without content blockers, probably because I have one installed. I don't know if this option would show if the user did not have a content blocker. It does. I've tested it both ways. And, uh, and you do, if you just hang on the, on the, um, on the refresh button on a mobile site, you will get the option to request the desktop version. So very, very cool, Adam. I love these quick tips, man. It's fun stuff. All right. Kevin, uh, this one's more of a, uh, well, it, it is a tip. Here's something that I stumbled upon, which I've not heard anyone mention previously with any iOS device that has an a nine processor, which I believe is the six S the six S plus and the iPhone SE, uh, you can dictate without an internet connection. The accuracy appears to be just as good or as bad as anything before. Prior to the A9, an internet connection is required or was required to dictate. I'm curious as to why Apple hasn't seen fit to mention this, but I figured I would do it because I think it's wonderful. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, very, very cool. You're right. You can do dictation uh, whether or not you are online. So, you know, if you're on an airplane, uh, you can dictate to your phone and, and please all of your uh, seatmates. I think would be that would be the the best use case of that, don't you, John? Why not? Why not? <laughs> Let's see here. Yeah, I'm using the Mac Tracker. So yeah, so the six is an Apple A8. 
Right. Six S is the A is where the A nine starts. And the, and the iPhone SE also has the A nine, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the okay. last three models that they list here are right. the A nine. Any anything released um, two thousand fifteen and later, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's it's got the juice, yo. Yeah. Yeah. I love this SE, by the way. Uh, you know, I I just I can't uh, say enough good things about it. I I didn't realize how much I missed having an iPhone of this size because I just immediately accepted when the six and six plus came out that I had to go bigger in order to have the, uh, you know, the latest and greatest technology. And so I just accepted it and wound up going six plus because if I'm going to go bigger, I might as well go biggest. And uh, when I had the opportunity to try this thing out, man, I don't, I I don't want to give it back and I haven't. It's, um, it's outstanding. I love this this SE. So I'm kind of bigger, hoping. Bigger isn't always better. No, no, it's not. I, I really like traveling in Europe. Man, with with this thing was fantastic. My my family was was jealous, especially my wife, who she really enjoys the Success Plus. Um, but uh, you know, when we were on like segways and stuff, one handed, I could take pictures and no problem with the with the SE. And she was like, Yeah, I can't. I can't do that on the on the six S plus. I'm like, yeah, it's good. She does have a better camera on the six S plus, uh, for especially for low light stuff than than the SE. But, yeah, but you know, it's all good. All right, uh, back to quick tips because we have quite a few of them left. Uh, Danny writes, "My life is full of joy since I learned how to reduce the time it takes to see the dock popping to existence when the cursor hit the edge of the screen." And he gives us a terminal line, which is defaults, right? Com.apple.doc auto hide time modifier int zero. And we will paste this into the show notes for today because that is handy, handy stuff. Very, very cool. Uh, So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can set that time down to zero. I have a feeling that Onyx might also let you, adjust this in the GUI as opposed to having to go to uh, the terminal, but either one's fine. And we can put those in the, uh, in the show notes. All right. And uh, well, let's, let's finish these up. Then we can talk about different business and stuff. Uh, Cause we have a couple of deep dives that are coming up. Uh, and that reminds me of one, cause there's, we're going to do one on the terminal. It, although, although it's fair to say the first deep dive we did was the terminal. And I think it was like episodes 30, six and 37 i don't know it was early i mean like first year but we we definitely have done a deep dive on the terminal but we'll revisit don't it because fear the terminal that's what we called it i think <laughs> seriously um because the terminal is not the reaper nor it does it have a, cowbell right <laughs> but it scares a lot of people it does yeah yeah, it's going back to a and it should time. you should have a healthier you should have a healthy respect for it uh, and and <laughs> well I mean you can really screw things up in the terminal oh uh, you could destroy everything yeah but you'd have to really be intentional about that though no, all right not, not really no, well that's true. most uh, I I would say most things that can do uh, lots of damage you usually have to do a pseudo before it right right right, right. so that's kind of the the gate. That's the, the gateway. Yeah, if you exactly. don't know what to type after pseudo, then you probably shouldn't be don't, don't doing type what anything. you're doing. That's right. <laughs> yeah. No. So we're going to do a deep dive on the terminal, but we've got one coming up. Oh, we're here. We'll, we'll finish the quick tips in a second. Um, because we love our tangents on Mac Geek Gab, and you do too. 
we're the next one we're going to do is on backups. And I think it's going to be not next week, but the week after. So we've already actually got a ton of questions from you folks on backups, which is sort of what steered us towards this. But in addition to answering your questions in the deep dive episode, we'll we'll kind of talk through our strategies and what we do and what we don't do and why we don't do it and all of that good stuff. But uh, but we'd love to hear from you. Your backup strategies really would be a great place to start. And if that triggers anything else, either out of you or if we read it uh, in advance and, and and prompt you for more, that would be great. And of course, your questions related to backup uh, would be good, too. Your answer to our query better not be what backup? Mm. Well, Otherwise we're going to come over and yeah, have words. Yeah, that's right. I know I'm going to have to have, well, that's, that's the deep dive episode. It's, it'll be like <laughs> us coming over and having words. That's right. So feedback at MacGeekab.com is where you're going to send all of that stuff, folks. So make sure you, uh, no, sure you right. oh, it's feedback at MacGeekab.com. No, 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 no. It's feedback at MacGeekab.com. That's, that's where we're going to, we're going to send all that stuff. All right. Finally, with our last couple of quick tips here before we get into regular tips, uh, Chris writes and says, uh, I have one handy little hint if any of your listeners use the inbuilt calculator on iOS. Uh, if you want to do a sum, say nine times nine, that's not a sum, but anyway, I'm, I think I'm reading this right. Nine times 99. Uh, if, if you type nine times 99, but acts, if you want to do nine times 99, I'll get there folks. This was a really small PDF. So if you want, if you, if you intended to do nine times 99, but accidentally did nine times. Wow. You know, sometimes this job is harder than it looks. I'm just going to start right over at the beginning. So Chris, hang on, let me reset the, uh, the chapter marker here so that we get this right. And, uh, and there we go. Chris sends in a tip for anybody that uses the calculator on iOS. If you want to say do nine times nine, but accidentally type nine times 99, just swipe to the left or the right on the number display window. And the last input is deleted. Do it again for as many corrections as you need to make. It really saves time and frustration of pushing, pushing the, the C to clear the whole input. So we got that right the second time through. That's good fun stuff. Thank you for that. I had no idea that you could swipe to, to delete uh, number by number. Very cool. And Jim with the uh, final quick tip, and then we'll move on to some episode related follow-ups. Jim says we have a music system downstairs and a separate system upstairs. Occasionally I want to treat them as a single all house system with the same music playing in sync. If you try to set this up using the airplay icon showing at the top of your screen in the menu bar, you will find it impossible to make this work. You have to use the airplay icon at the top bar of the iTunes window. It drove me crazy till I figured it out. And you're right. Yeah. iTunes can do this and manage the syncing, whereas um, the system will not. So it, you, it, it might be obvious to those listening and, and certainly would be obvious to Jim because he's tried it. But this as a byproduct does not mean that it will sync up all uh audio for the system it's just itunes that it's going to do this with but it works and it's uh if you haven't experienced you know whole home audio where you've got multiple speakers running in sync and being able to just kind of float around the house and hear the same music coming from everywhere it, it's pretty special and uh you know sonos is the the one that that has made that super easy 
uh, for folks, but, uh, but iTunes does it too. And, and if you've got all airplay speakers, then you're in good shape or really actually, I guess it doesn't need to be airplay speakers. It's any speakers that are connected to your Mac cause they can be Bluetooth and, and that sort of thing too. So thank you, Jim. Good stuff. John, you want to uh, take us into the follow-ups from uh, last week? And I think that's all we have is follow-ups from last week. Yeah. And this one was sent because it was just a short little piece of information, but this was sent via Twitter. Well, we're talking about how to get in touch with us here. That This was sent to our Twitter at MacGeekab. But that's not the only Twitter you can use to reach us, Dave. Uh, there's also me, John F. Ron, you, Dave Hamilton, uh, Pilot Pete, and Mac Observer, all Twitter addresses. And this one, it, you know, it, it, it's almost like we made a, mish, a wish and somebody made this program, so they did it a while ago. Um, I hadn't heard of this, but uh, a Twitter from or a tweet from John said, try photos-2-disc.com. And sure enough, if you go there, there's a program that will let you take stuff in photos and export it in a way that's better than the way photos does it. Because as we determined in a prior episode, uh, although photos can export, it doesn't do it in a very nice way. Uh, and that it pretty much is a flat file. And that's exactly what this pro uh, I haven't tried this program. It looks like there's a trial and you can buy it. Um, huh. I'm going to, I'm going to assume that it's not like evil. I mean, I, I've never, you know, it says, you know, it's uh, it's from photo to disc ink or whatever. Yeah. Okay, sure. I mean, it looks like somebody, you know, took it upon themselves. I mean, it looks like uh, when you look at it, it, it lets you surf the package and select things you want to export. But it, uh, again, it looks to do it in a nicer way. Yeah. Huh. So Very thank you cool. for that tweet. Very cool. Nice find. I like it. Cool. Um, all right, Bruce has, uh, we were talking about iOS ghost apps in the last episode and Bruce has a great tip. It said in, in Mac Geek Up 617, you had a listener comment about a ghost app that wouldn't delete and its data was sticking around. He says, I had this problem and was able to deal with it without a backup and restore, uh, in the following method. Number one, do a full iOS reboot. Then number two, re-download the app from the app store. That will bring the app down and reattach it to the data that's there. Then do another full iOS reboot just for good measure and then delete the app. Now that it's reattached to that data, when you delete the app, the data should be deleted as well. And Bruce says he's done this a couple of times and it has worked brilliantly. Uh, that is, uh, that's a, and that's the word I would use, brilliant. Very, very smart, Bruce. Thank you for sharing that and saving many folks the um, the pain of having to restore from a backup just to uh, just to get rid of that. So cool stuff. I like it. Now it's time to hear from JP. JP, take it away. Hey, John. Hey, Dave. JP in L.A. I'm just listening to the show. And your last question from the uh, the guy who wanted to have all of his files synced on his laptop and his desktop and you were talking about personal cloud. I got I just wanted to share with you my personal cloud method, uh, cause I love it and I find it's been, it's been fantastic. Uh, uh, I pay out the nose for Dropbox for the, the top of the line amount. And 
I literally uh, use Dropbox as my folder storage for any documents that uh, I need. And this includes videos, and it also includes my music, my photos, because I do not use, um, I do not store the iTunes photos in the, on the hard drive. I use, you know, I, I put it somewhere else. So I put everything in the Dropbox. I have like, it's a filing cabinet for me. It's basically my documents folder. And it's fantastic. No matter where I go, no matter what I do and what computer I'm on, I open either one of them and it's all sunk up and everything is there. Uh, I find it quite delightful. And uh, that's my uh, method. I'm sure uh, you guys do something similar, but thought I'd share that with you and your listeners. Thank you very much, JP. Good stuff. I, yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, you know, that's how uh, you, you have to pay for it. I mean, I guess, I guess the the two things anybody might find wrong with it are that you have to pay for it, uh, and someone else has your data. But um, you know. he also says it's delightful, which uh, it is that, delightful. That, that caught my attention. Well, you know, that's the thing, though. <laughs> I've used right. I use a lot of different syncing things. Um, I've used Dropbox. I've used, and when I talk about syncing things, I should I should clarify that I've used a lot of different sync methods where you install an app on your Mac to manage this magical syncing in the background. Um, and iCloud, uh, you know, iCloud Drive is is one of those, right? Dropbox and iCloud Drive are by far the most reliable when it comes to just syncing your files without any weirdness. I also use BitTorrent Sync. I'm a huge fan of BitTorrent Sync. It's not, it's called Revealio or something like that. They changed it. It's at getsync.com. Um, but they, there's been some weirdness with that over the years. I mean, it's, it's not insurmountable. I still use it. It's my main document sync engine, but, um, but sometimes there's files that just don't want to sync because, oh, you know, they have this character in the file name. It's like, you know what, if it's legal yeah. on the Mac, figure it out. That that's my that you know, and that's what I've told them. They're like, "Well, there's a reason for that. It doesn't matter. No. It's irrelevant. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah, it's a, figure it out." No, the thing is, you didn't design a good product. That's the problem. Yeah. Well, they, what they designed is a cross-platform product. But to be fair, yeah. so did Dropbox, and these same files sync with that. So back to yeah. the drawing board. Figure it out, right? And and the same is true. Like Synology has their own. Uh, thing which of course requires a Synology unit to be used as a server or multiple ones if you want to uh, spread it around. But they do have a Mac app and it's called Cloud Station. And I used that for a while, but it had too many of those problems for me back then. It's actually gotten way, way better. Uh, and I, I've thought about moving away from BitTorrent Sync to that. But, you know, moving your sync engine, I guess it's not that difficult. You just kind of yeah. turn it I off. I like Dropbox. It it's, your Dropbox is good. Yeah. Like I was saying, um, well, the bottom line is that you don't know it's there. And to me, that's, that's a successful product that you don't, that yeah. it's not getting in your way, preventing you from doing things. Right. Right. Like you said, it's like, well, we got a good reason that we can't do this thing that you expect us to be able to do. And it's like, no, the, the reason is you, you screwed it, up. The question is moot. That's it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You got to go back to the drawing board. Back that's, to the drawing board. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and to be fair, they do go back to the drawing board and, you know, and then they'll fix, you know, these things, some of these things. And it's like, all right, cool. You know, and that's fine. I get it. 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm perhaps I'm too tolerant of that stuff at times because I, I understand what it's like to, you know, be a, a programmer and, uh, you know, you design something and then there's this use case that you didn't predict. And so now you have to rethink it and it sucks, but that's kind of how it goes. So, all right. Uh, also last episode, we talked a lot about email archiving and we have a couple of con comments about that. First from Jim, he said, uh, for my email archiving, I use a belt and suspenders approach Two archiving programs. I use mail steward pro set to run automatically early each morning and another email archiver pro, which I run manually from time to time. Both programs are able to archive email attachments. Mail steward pro is a front end to MySQL, And in my experience is something a bit problematic in that following heavy disk duty maintenance, like wiping caches using Onyx or cocktail, then mail steward pro fails to find the database. It's a bit of a pain to reestablish the automated process following such glitches. So not recommended for non geeks. Uh, email Archiver Pro, he says, creates standalone PDF files of emails and attachments. So this may be very interesting to our listener from last episode. I have not experienced any glitches with this program. I've been using version two and there's now version four, which touts an improved interface and more features. So many uh, it can run automatically now as well. Perhaps beware, though, the base edition of version four supports only five email accounts. You have to pay more to have more accounts archived. So thank you very much, Jim, for uh, the follow up on that. This is, you know, it's a good conversation to be having. So, John, you got one, uh, another one you found on Twitter. Well, it's the same one, actually. Oh, <laughs> all right. There you go. I'm just looking here and I'm like, oh, email. Uh, yes. Yeah, so this this was tweeted to us by Got it. Uh, listener John basically saying, yep, email archiver pro. Sweet. So, uh, so we got two votes for that. Two votes. Uh, yeah. 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 I love my it. MySQL. That's a that's a good database. They bake it into uh to to mail steward yeah 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 mysql's great that's um i mean there's a built-in one i guess mysql is built into os 10 as well right i think i know um, i know um sql light is but i feel like mysql is too i, I could be wrong on that I, I mean i have it on most of my os 10 machines i just can't remember which ones i put it on manually with with like brew or something so We'll talk more about that in the terminal episode. All right. Uh, Pete goes back one episode prior uh, to share some thoughts about CPUs. Hi, John, Dave, and Pilot Pete. This is Pete from Wisconsin. Uh, in response to the temperature and overheating questions from MGG616, um, while it's true that he is operating within specs on the processor, um, it has always been true of electronic devices that when you operate near the extremes of of any specified value, whether it be temperature, voltage, current, radiation level, magnetic field strength, stuff like that, uh, operating near those extremes can cause, uh, it can significantly shorten the lifespan of the product. So I, with CPUs generally outlasting the computers that they're mounted in nowadays, I don't know if, if, uh, if people will ever see you know, ever see the uh, the result of that, but just something to bear in mind. Uh, might not be a bad idea once in a while to take control. Excuse me, take control of the fan and uh, set it to highest RPM just to get some added airflow. Um, hope this helps with any questions people may have, and uh, it's just yet another way to uh, keep from getting caught. <laughs> Thanks very much, Pete. Good stuff. Uh, you and you're right. Yeah, yeah. he kills. Yeah, yeah. It kills electronics, that's for sure. 
Yeah. Well, the, the, yeah, and, you know, don't leave your kids or pets in the car in the summer either. Um, yeah, right. Well, yeah, there's that. I mean, cold kills too, you know. Yeah, well, any extreme. That's kind of what it, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But cold doesn't kill electronics. But, um, you know, I've heard the same argument used for um, batteries and charging and stuff. People are like, well, you know, it generates heat and that hurts the battery. I think it does. Yeah. The more heat you generate, the, the yeah. Um, yeah. Well, things use more power or... Uh, so, yeah, I'm with that, though, at least, you know, in the, in the case of the Intel processors, we spoke, they have the one level and then they have the, oh, OK, I'm going to turn off because I'm about to break. Right, right. I think it was 100 degrees and then 130 degrees is where it, it says, no, something's not right. Yep. All right. Um, we have a couple of questions about notes. One is really kind of a follow up from a previous episode in that. Paul asked, I heard you mention a notebook software that Dave and John shared, uh, used to share show notes and agendas together. I'm wondering what you used. I used notebook from circusponies.com until they went out of business. I'm always on the lookout for alternatives. I enjoy your podcast. Okay. Um, yeah. So for notes, John and I are using Evernote, uh, to share our notes and, and then Google, uh, Google docs, here and there uh we use it really we use google docs when we're doing the show live so our timestamps, which we put into our agenda we have a google doc that we use every week and then we also have our show notes in a google doc that we build as we do the show every week and then john goes back through and kind of uh, flushes those out and it's not actually the google docs are not just us it's anyone in the chat room at mackiekeb.com slash stream that can join us there and really help uh edit those notes and and Many of you do, and thank you for that. It makes life a whole lot easier. So, yeah, we use we use Evernote. Um, I have uh, I have recently re begun experimenting with Notes on uh, iCloud, and the iOS ten version of of Notes, and really, actually, even the iOS nine version is really quite quite uh, quite full featured. In fact, I. I'm doing these gigs with uh, many of you may remember Paul Kent, who used to run Macworld Expo and uh, he was in charge of the conferences for a long time and then, and then took over the entire expo. And, uh, and he's got a band out in California and I'm going to fill in with him because his drummer's out and I needed to uh, build some charts, but my, you know, the charts that I need to build are not just straightforward sheet music. I need occasionally to sort of scribble in some rhythms or whatever, but for the most part, I just need to write um, you know, the form of a song, something to remind me about, you know, we do the chorus twice here and then we stop on the three and this, that, and the other thing. And, but I need something I've, I've always just used a pad of paper because, um, I can, I can scratch like little figures, rhythmic figures, uh, in notation that makes sense to me and also write words. And I had yet to really find a note taking program that, that, uh, that lets me do both and Apple notes. It's actually working pretty well. I, I'd I'd be happy to hear some uh, some advice for other things, but Apple Notes uh, very very good. And the reason John, you and I switched to Evernote as opposed to <clears throat> excuse me as opposed to Apple Notes for the show is because at the time Apple Notes did not allow us to have a notebook shared between the two of us. We can sync our individual 
our personal notebooks to all of our devices. And that just sort of works uh, automatically yeah. with, with iCloud. But we and can't share of course, their multimedia support was non-existent right and we put like the audio comments we're actually playing them right out of evernote so we put your audio comments right into an evernote notebook that john and i can both see and then i just go into evernote and hit play and and that works really really well so yeah so that so you know evernote evernote works for us but um the notes app may work very very well for you and i would not discount it um so there you go that's my that's my my thought um although I had somebody write us this morning saying that uh, they recently moved from Evernote to Microsoft's OneNote and people are ecstatic with how great OneNote is Uh, totally cross platform. Obviously it runs on windows, but there's a Mac app, there's iOS apps, uh, cloud syncing, sharing uh, much easier. The the user interface of OneNote is uh, from what we're told much easier than uh, than Evernote to deal with things like lists and checkboxes and all that good stuff. So I, um, so I highly recommend checking it out. I've, I, I've checked it out, but it's been a while, but, uh, but you know, if Evernote gets weird on us, well, I'll, I would say we would look at notes first. Cause you and I are both, you know, diehard Apple enough that the lack of a windows client isn't really going to hurt yeah, us. But, but one note, one note it's people, like, people like it. Yeah, it's Microsoft. That's right. Yes, that's right. <laughs> oh, they're not evil anymore. No, they're not. No, no. <laughs> they uh, they kind of know what they're doing over there in some ways. Yeah. Yes, they do. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, and then Bobby uh, in the notes realm. We may have already answered Bobby's question in a way, but uh, Bobby has a couple, so we'll we'll go through it. Uh, he says in the iOS notes app, can you can get a count of how many notes you actually have per account. For example, on my iPhone in the notes app, I can easily see that I have 57 notes in iCloud. Is it possible to get the count on my laptop running El Capitan? I can see the notes, but can't see the number uh, to confirm that it's the same on my iPhone. And then number two, his question is, do you know how to copy or move notes from one Apple ID account to another? And the answer for both of those is Yes, Bobby, I've got you covered. So for number one, um, I would have sworn that at some point in time, I could scroll to the bottom of the list of notes and see the count. And maybe that's true on iOS. Maybe that's where that's coming from. But uh, but if you do that on El Capitan in the notes app, you don't get to see it. However, if you select all of your notes, they will highlight and then grab them with the mouse and just move ever so slightly. You don't want to actually move them. Just start to move them. And you will see a little uh, paper icon, like a stack of paper icon that shows that you're moving notes and a red number attached to it. And the red number is the number of notes you have selected. So if you've selected all, you now have a count of your notes. So when there's a Will or a Dave, there's a way. So there you go. That's number one. Uh, Number two. Yeah, you can move notes but you can copy notes or i suppose you can you and you can move them too between icloud accounts um the way you would do this is to add a second icloud account to your mac and this sounds weird but it's actually quite elegant because apple knows that you might have a reason to have multiple icloud accounts you might have different calendars in one you might have different contacts in one you might have different mail and that's a very uh, valid reason to want to have two icloud accounts but it's also smart enough to know that when you add the second iCloud account to not treat it the same way that your primary 
iCloud account is. So you don't get back to my Mac. You don't get, um, you know, find my iPhone. You don't get any of that stuff on the secondary or tertiary iCloud accounts. What you get is Safari syncing. Uh, oh, sorry. Sorry. What you don't get is Safari syncing, photo syncing, document syncing, keychain back to my Mac or find my Mac. What you do get is mail, contacts, calendars, reminders, and notes. So you can attach your a second iCloud account. And in the iCloud prep pane, this is where you're doing it. Um, you would only check the notes box if you don't want it to start pulling mail and contacts and calendars and reminders. And, uh, and then you'll just see it appear in notes uh, in the app. And you can move stuff back and forth very, very easily. And then, and then once it's there, you can sign out of the account and you're totally fine. So that's how I recommend doing it. Good stuff, right, John? Okay. Do you have another way? Uh, well, you could always share your notes, but that's 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 kind of primitive. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, you know, with a little share box. There's a lot of options there. But, uh, yeah, but you're not. No, I get it. But uh, you're not no, sharing but, the but, entire but, notebook, right? That that would be the problem. Exactly. You'd have to share them individually. Yeah. 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 That's crazy making. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about our, uh, our sponsor for this episode, John, if, uh, if that works for you. Oh, absolutely. All right. Our sponsor for today is Bushel at bushel.com slash MGG. And that's where you go to sign up for your free for life Bushel account that gets you three devices for free forever of Bushel's awesome mobile device management solution. What does that mean? You can control and configure iPhones, iPads, and even Macs remotely. So, obviously, if you're working somewhere and you need to do that, this makes perfect sense. You don't have to pull all the devices into your office to do it. Where it gets even more valuable is if you are a consultant and you've got lots of clients everywhere. Maybe you've got some of them on a maintenance plan and they can just call you and you do whatever you need. Well, this is perfect for that. This way, you can make sure things are set up just right. You can fix an email password. You can tweak whatever it is you need to tweak in the settings remotely with the client's permission. Of course, three devices for free for life. And after that, it's just two bucks per device per month. So if you've got a client on a maintenance plan, this two bucks pays for itself right away. You've got to check this out. Go to bushel.com slash MGG, sign up for your account. And see how easy their interface is. It's all wrapped up into one web interface. You can manage those Apple devices when you want, wherever you want. And Bushel makes the complex simple so that you can focus on your customers. You got to check it out. Bushel.com slash MGG. Our thanks to Bushel for sponsoring this episode. And now, Dave. Yes. Let's go to Darren Christopher. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. Take it away. He's got like a double first name. That's like, that's kind of cool. That's cool. Uh, or it's a typo. I don't know. But, uh, all right. So Darren Christopher writes in and says, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. And we're a huge fan too. Um, recent. Uh, what's his problem? Here's his problem. We're going to figure it out. I think, or at least I think I figured it out. I recently have been trying to figure out if there's a way to see the size of a directory when using terminal in the recovery environment so I can know how much space I may need when trying to pull data from a volume on a Mac to an external device. 
On occasion, I have to back up data from the terminal in the recovery environment due to damage, and I can't get booted into the system, but can see files with the recovery. So, um, the question is, do you know of any way where I can tell the size of a directory? Yes. From the terminal. Correct. So, the terminal, as we spoke. Uh, well, the, ter- the terminal from within recovery. Now, here's the problem, Dave. So if you're in recovery, which is Apple's little mini environment where you can do certain things and you get to it by holding down command and R when you boot your machine, one of the things you can do is go into terminal. Now, the question being presented is, how do I see the size of a directory? And I think there was a suggestion. Well, I know about LS and I think we all know about LS, but if you don't, LS is the command that you type in the terminal that lets you see files in a directory. But it's not, and, and, it, and it shows the size, too, depending on, on what switch you use, right? Yeah, that's right. Here's the problem, though. It's terrible for telling you the size of a directory because it doesn't, Dave. Did you know that? I, I, I was looking for a way to get LS to tell me the size of a directory. I mean, it'll show you no. when you do an LS, you'll see a D, which indicates that something is a directory. Yeah, but so, it won't. So, it'll show you the size uh, of the, it'll show you the number of bytes that the actual like file entry for the directory takes, right. but that's not the contents of the directory, which is really what you, what you but want to know. That's not what we want. Right. Right. The problem is now, you know, there may be a better command to do that, Dave. And I think there is. And actually I found a little, little mojo here um, that you can do from the terminal that'll show you the size of all the directories uh, nicely listed. Uh, in the current directory that you're in. So, you know, that's the first thing. So you got to get to it. But then here's the problem, Dave. So as I mentioned, recovery is kind of like a little baby OS 10 environment. Well, it doesn't have some commands like these commands. I'm going to tell you to use. So first off, I'm going to tell you the command. So step one, here's what you want to use instead. There's something called DU. Now that's what you want to use because DU uh, the purpose of that command is to list disk usage statistics. And that includes, by the way, how big a directory is. So the command is, uh, I found this and tweaked a little bit. No, I don't think I tweaked it. Maybe a little bit. But um, du is the command. Space dash dash s h. All right. H is human readable. S is uh, show an entry for. So, yeah, it's a here. single entry for each file as a, because otherwise DU will just um, pull the, the entire whatever you tell it to, to look at. It will add it all up as right. one. And so you want if you want individual directories, you want the S. That's right. And then a space, then a star, which means everything. Then a space, then a vertical bar. What does that mean? Well, that means, OK, we'll feed what I'm going to say to what's coming up next. Basically, then, a, then this is what makes it look purdy. Um, then you do a space, then say sort, then space, then dash R. And once you do that, well, we're not quite there yet. Because I, as I mentioned, DU and sort aren't in the path of, uh, or aren't available to you from recovery. So what you have to do is type in the path to a disk that has it, like probably the disk uh-huh. that you're connected to. So, in my case, 
or actually in every case, so you would type slash volumes, slash the name of the disk that has this command in it, slash USR, slash bin, slash D. I'm, I'm going to have MGG Jim write this up so that, because there's no way anybody's going to understand what you're saying. I mean, I think if they under, if they already understand the concept, they're already there. If they don't, they're not, they're not going to get there with an audio yeah. audible. Well, in the show notes, I'm going to paste this. But, okay, cool. Um, yeah. But, 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 but the, the concept is you have to explicitly type in the path of where these commands are because they're not available to you uh, via the path that recovery sets. Or sure. I suppose you could set the path, but I think this is easier. <laughs> it's probably about the same amount of typing. So that oh, is Oh, yeah, the right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. you, you, you know what I'm saying. You can I do. Say path equals and then do some magic there. By the time you're done with that, you could just type it in manual. You could just type in the entire path. Right, right, right. <laughs> Yeah, that command. makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So that's the answer. That had to uh, scratch my head a bit on that one because at first I didn't know. I'm like, can you use LS? And it's like, no, LS is it's not meant to do this this thing. <laughs> yeah, it's not meant to do it. That's right. Yeah. All right. That's pretty cool. I. Uh, yeah, yeah. I I wouldn't. I I don't know that I um that I would include sort in that. Um. Only well, because in the, in the it, it adds confusion that I saw, to to it, you know. I would I would just yeah. You don't you don't have to put it there. Uh-uh. Yeah, and the thing is, it will take a little while because it's doing quite a bit of work on the disk. Um, so don't be surprised if when you type this in, it doesn't immediately respond. All right. Yeah. All right. What's uh, what's next? Um, okay, we'll go to uh, man. I got like frog in my throat allergies fun stuff we'll go to alan here and alan has actually another great one that i think will turn into an article here uh alan says i have an itunes library of 6500 items itunes match is turned on and i run on a 2012 macbook air uh but it's limited in space so a long time ago i moved my itunes library to an external drive at first, it was a portable USB, USB drive, but I got tired of lugging around a second piece of hardware, so I bought an SD card that was large enough and moved the library there. I thought I had a backup of the SD card, but when the SD card failed to mount yesterday, I searched and found no backup. I want to set up a new library on an external drive and download all my music from iTunes Match. So in, in theory, in a sense, there was a backup, uh, but I cannot figure out how to do that. I can see the music and access it on my iPhone and iPad, but neither has room for more than a fraction of my library. So I can't download the entire library there in iTunes on the Mac. All my music shows up, but if I try to play anything, it doesn't download because it thinks it's on the SD card. That's not there and reports that the original item cannot be found and asks me to locate it, but I no longer have my copy. So how can I make the Mac download from the cloud? Ideally, I'd want it to download everything. But if I have to select chunks to download, that's fine. All right. Uh, this is a great question. Uh, and, and you're totally right that the reason that iTunes is complaining is because it thinks that the file is already downloaded. That, that's the problem is your, your iTunes library, quote unquote, knows that it already has the file downloaded and it just can't find the local copy. And it's asking you to, to locate that. Uh, the trick is getting iTunes to realize you ain't never going to give it the local copy because it's gone. Um, one way would be to start a brand new iTunes library, launch iTunes with the option key down 
create a new library, log into your, um, you know, your Apple ID that has iTunes match enabled, and then you'll see all these files and it'll be kind of the same thing that you get on your iPhone. And then you can just select all and, and right click and tell it to download. And then it'll, it'll slip them all down uh, from the cloud. Um, or you could try telling your current iTunes library to delete the local copy. Uh, I can't test this here because I don't have, I, I'm not experiencing the same problem that you are, but if I click on a song in my iTunes library, I can say, delete and then when i i if i right click on it i mean i can choose delete or you can do it from the file menu and then it'll ask you do you want to delete just your copy or also delete from icloud do not choose to delete from icloud uh, hopefully that's obvious but i'll say it anyway uh and then once you do that then you might be able to trigger it to to download it again and of course you can do this with multiple songs by just doing um you know a select all or multiple selections um before you do that though and in either case, whether you create a new library or you go to pull this one down, you'll want to, because you don't have enough room on your internal drive for all of these songs, you will want to point your iTunes uh, library to save its media in a place where you do have this storage. So maybe you've got another SD card that you're going to back up from now forward, or you have an external USB drive that you're going to back up from now forward. And, uh, and so, you know, point it there first. And you do that by going into iTunes preferences advanced and set your iTunes media folder location. And then you can download all this stuff. But if you start downloading it before that, it's, it's just going to put it on your hard drive uh, or your, your boot drive because it can't find it anywhere else. So just bear that in mind, but I think you'll be all right. I think you're going to, I think iTunes match is going to save your bacon on this one, Alan, which is a, a beautiful thing, or at least most of your bacon. There might be a couple of things that couldn't upload to iTunes match because they were the wrong file type or, um, or too large, too long, I guess is the, the real trick. But, but for the most part, I think you're going to get your stuff back, which is good news. Thoughts on this, John? Bacon. Bacon. Yep, that's right. <laughs> All right. Listener Greg has, uh, he has an interesting question. I, I'm actually looking forward to this discussion. So, uh, Greg writes, uh, I'm going to a client today. Uh, and she always asked me to import her new photos. Her operating system is Mountain Lion and her iPhone is uh, an iPhone 6 Plus on iOS 8 still. The reason for not upgrading is I think there's an issue with her iPhone. I'm also waiting for her to get a new computer, which she says she's going to buy a new one soon. And I didn't want to update it as it's real old uh, with an old hard drive. She's been saving this for almost a year. Her old iMac is a 2009 she has uh, current backups as I set up Time Machine. The main issue uh, is, oh, that's right. This gets really confusing. Um, well, it, okay, we'll talk about one of the problems with it, and then we'll talk about the main issue. He says, uh, I've noticed that when trying to import her voice memos, she has a ton of them from over the years from the memos app. Some of them cannot transport, transfer to the Mac, and I have to use iMazing to go to the root of the phone and find the raw file to export and then rename it. Many times when using iMazing, when I click the copy to Mac button for that individual voice memo, I get an error saying that it can't be found. This happens probably 10% of the time. Going into the view where I can see all the, fold the folders, I can find the file by date and I can successfully extract it using iMazing. I have a feeling that maybe the directory on her iPhone is corrupted for the voice memos or something. I don't know if there's a limit or for how many voice memos you can have. I told her that we need to erase her phone and restore it. 
but I couldn't promise that her voice memos will come back to the voice memos app because there's this corruption. I also told her we would have to use iTunes to store her voice memos. That's because I'm going to be doing a nuke and pave and not a restore. She's not ready to do that yet, so I haven't erased the phone. The main issue is uh, a couple of weeks ago, I connected her iPhone to the computer and I launched image capture, aperture, and iPhoto, and none of them were able to see her new photos. I can see photos up to a certain date, but it didn't show her the new photos in the import window. I think she has 10,000 photos on her phone and she's not using iCloud photo library. I'm connecting through a lightning cable. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I could see the new photos and they did import, but it's an intermittent problem. And some weeks I can see it and some weeks I can't. I know that I should do a nuke and pave on the iPhone, but she's not ready to do that yet. So I'm not sure what to do or what to tell the client. Yes, she's high maintenance, but that's kind of the client. That's the kind of client she is. And that's okay. Now, she's very scared that she's going to lose her files. So that's the main reason why she doesn't want to change anything or do the nuke and pave. Do you have any advice? So, yeah, um, I have a lot of advice on this because I've 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 done this before. Um, so your best bet is to keep shooting backups with iTunes and or iMazing and preserve that data as long as possible. I mean, it, you know, that that's going to when things do finally fall apart for reals, uh, having those backups is going to help a lot. Um, but the reality is, and I know you know this, the phone needs to be upgraded uh, at the very least. Or wiped and upgraded and probably wiped and upgraded because it sounds like everything you're describing sounds like directory corruption of some sort. But I think the bigger problem is not the phone. It's the customer. Um, You know, when I was doing a lot of on-site consulting, I dealt with with folks like this. And uh, and this, you know, like when I started doing it back in the 90s, people were even more fearful of technology than they are now in general, although your client certainly, you know, is is, um, approaching an extreme. A couple of years ago, we came up with a term on this show, and I can't exactly remember why, but uh, the term was rat gawk. And our goal on this show is for us to be your rat gawk. What is that? Your reasonable and trusted geeks of choice. Um, And that starts with reasonable. So you have to suggest things that make sense. Uh, And then it moves on to trusted. And you have to suggest things that are in your client's best interest, not yours. I, when we were running computer nerds in, in Austin back in the, in the nineties, I would, I'd hire, this happened all the time. I'd hire a new nerd and they'd go out in the field and then I'd get a, I'd, I'd check in with their customer or whatever. And I'd hear that, oh yeah, you know, Timmy came out. We never had a nerd named Timmy. Uh, Timmy came out and uh, you fixed my printer that I called you for and then installed all kinds of uh, stuff on my computer that he said would make it run better. But now I can't find how to get to my clock because he installed this custom clock that he said he liked better. It was something, it would be something like that. And so I'd sit Timmy down and I'd say, Timmy, you like that custom clock thing, don't you? Oh, it's awesome. It's the best. Totally great. Awesome. Make sure you install that on all of your computers. Good. Right. Well, one more thing, Timmy, don't ever install it for a client again. Why? Because the client didn't ask you for that. You need to stop and you can make recommendations to the client. But for the most part, and we're about to put an asterisk on that, for the most part, you then have to just, you know, here's my recommendation and then ask, what would you like me to do? And if the client's like, I don't, I like my clock the way it's all good, then it's all good. And thank you very much. And on your way. Right. Um, So generally trust comes from doing what the customer wants and nothing more. But sometimes, and in this case, 
You have to build up enough of that trust so that you can leverage it and tell the client the right thing to do, even though that might come with a little bit of pain. Uh, the data that exists for her in iMazing or iTunes is always going to be there, right? I mean, if you're able to back it up with iMazing and see that data, then you can save that data elsewhere. But her phone is only going to get worse at this point. And she needs to buy into this, uh, of course. But you really need to work on on her in this regard is is my thought um, as opposed to anything else. I mean, you're, you're patching a, a, you know, uh, uh, a, a dying situation here. Uh, and you got to, it sounds like she's been kind of on this real soon now going to upgrade path. And I think you need to kind of nudge her along one way or another. Uh, the customer, you know, there, there's, there's the customer service angle of this, and, and that's such an important part. I know we have a lot of folks that, that uh, listen to the show that are consultants, and it's, it's easy, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I err on the side of customer service. Whatever the client wants, I will do, except when I know that it's the wrong thing for them. But then I just sit them down, and, you know, we turn away from the computer and talk just as humans to each other about, look, if this were my computer, here's what I would do. And if we don't do anything, here's where we're going to get. And I think it's really important. You know, the problem is, of course, that Apple won't let you install iOS 8 back on this phone. So she's going to have to move to iOS 9, right? When you wipe this thing, it's going to upgrade. There's a lot of good things about upgrading. Uh, you know, not, I mean, it, you'd be able to run apps. Um, but, you, you know, there's also this whole security side of, of being up to date and all of that. So I, I think on this one, you know, the tech solution the the thing is working on the client. Thoughts, John? Sure. Okay. Thanks. Oh, oh no. I was just saying, uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. What you said, but um, yeah, if there's any nugget here, it's clear that the state of the phone is getting worse and you have to deal with it somehow. Yeah. And you know, a 2009 iMac will probably tough love. We need tough love. here. We'll run El Capitan just fine. Um, and you know, I don't know. I, I think you could upgrade both, but certainly the phone needs to needs to go up or it needs to be wiped. And because of that needs to be upgraded because of the way Apple does things. So, and I get it. I get there's the fear of, of nuking and paving the phone. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, the only reason we're comfortable with it here is because a, we talk about it all the time because B we've had to do it enough to know where those pain points are going to be. Like, I know if I got to reboot my phone, invariably, I'm going to have to like, you know, reconnect to a wireless network and type in a mail password here or there. I mean, in theory, it's all saved in my backups, but there's going to be something where it's like, oh yeah, I got to re-download the data for that app, the map data for, you know, this didn't stick in the backup. Okay, fine. You know, and there, and there is, there's that kind of stuff that you're, you're not going to remember what all of it's going to be. Uh, but, you know, with iCloud, and the way everything sort of exists in, in um, you know, in the cloud these days, you don't lose as much as, it, as you used to. You know, it's not all that difficult. So anyway, that's yeah. my, uh, that's my thoughts. John, I, uh, I, this, I, I upgraded my computer. Actually, both of them this week were the, both of the computers in the office, both the 27 inch iMacs. I have my 2011 iMac here in the studio and yeah. then a uh, 27 inch this is a 27 inch 2011 and then a, a 27 inch retina from 2014 yeah. downstairs i put new ram in 
So I went from how much uh, did you have? I had twelve here in the studio and sixteen in the office. And I twelve. Oh, eight and four. Okay. Yeah. That's exactly. Weird. Yep. And uh, and I upgraded both of them. I got some crucial RAM, and I upgraded them both to thirty two gigs. Uh, hunted around for prices. Crucial was was far and away the uh, the best. So who needs that much memory? You know, here's the interesting thing. Um, it was relatively inexpensive, so it was like, all right, yeah, I can, you know, fine, I can do this. And then, and then, um, I was actually ready to pull the trigger, and the folks at Crucial always yell at me whenever I do that. So I told them, I said, fine, I'm, I'm, I'm about to pull the trigger, and but you yell at me whenever you hear that I've, I've bought RAM, and so they sent it to me for free. But I was going to buy it from because they, they, like I said, they had the best prices. Uh, but full disclosure here. So, uh, it, it really was. It, I mean, it was wasn't that expensive um, to begin with. When I would start my machine in uh, in the office, so the one with 16 gigs of RAM, and launch the apps that I typically use during the day, it would be using somewhere in the neighborhood of 14 gigs um, used and, and two gigs free. So no swap being used or anything like that. I did exactly that after I put this 32 in, and I was at 17 gigs used uh, and, and the rest free. And huh? And so, uh, yeah. So and there's I, a delta of three. Why is that? Um, my guess is that there were things that wanted to be in RAM that weren't. And this is like active RAM as reported by, by iStat menus, not inactive, which is sort of like cache, if you will. So it, invariably over time, as it's booted, you know, as, as it's longer and longer since it's booted, you're going to have stuff just pile up in, in inactive RAM, which is fine because it might as well be used. But this is like it's using more active RAM than it was previously. So I can only assume that, you know, some of OS 10's memory management, perhaps memory compression uh, was being used on stuff that wanted to be in active RAM, but just couldn't be because there wasn't enough active RAM. But it wasn't so much that it needed to page out to disk. That's the only I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing here, but, you know, based on what I understand, that's the only thing that makes sense to me. I'm, but I'm, I'm, I'm wide open. Any thoughts on what would, what would cause, I certainly feel like I feel justified in, in upgrading the RAM. It's like, well, if it needed more, that's great. But, uh, I'm curious what, what you think, John. Uh, I don't have such ridiculous amounts of RAM. So. No, I'm not talking about your situation. I'm talking about your I'd have thoughts to, I'd about have to, this. I'd have to, uh, study. I'd have to do some study to the, that. So, well, here we are. I'm doing the show, right? I don't have anything launched then that I would not have otherwise. Um, like I have the same things launched this week that I would have last week. Uh, I rebooted the machine yesterday. So because I put the RAM in and we'll talk about that actually in a second. But um, so it's not like, you know, it's been it's had a zillion things running or anything. And right now on this machine, active actively used, not inactive, but actively used RAM is at 14 and a half gigs. So that's more ram than i had before and again on this machine i would not have had any page outs uh at this point no swap used so i'm i'm I, like i said i can only assume that it's it was previously using memory compression and now is not or doesn't have to but if as you, much well at all i mean i've got 13 gigs free right now on this machine so i'm guessing it doesn't need to do any many memory compression at the moment Right. Uh, yeah. Well, of course, you can tell by going to activity monitor and then yeah. memory and looking at the compressed memory column. Seven hundred forty-four K. 
Hey, look at that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, uh, uh, it's interesting. All I can say is you can never have too much RAM, right? What does that mean? <laughs> so, well, and then you can have too little RAM. Yeah, you can. Yeah. You can never have too much. Can you? Not, not anymore. No, I think there was a time. I mean, well, that machines. No, you can't have too much. You can't. I mean, there were there were some machines over the years where like you couldn't if you put too much in it would it would crater the machine. <laughs> but well, that, that was like in a a motherboard issue, not a. Uh, not an OS right. issue. Yeah. Right, right. So, um, on the, <laughs> I was reminded of a fun story, but on my, on this iMac in the studio here, it's the 2011 and the Ram door is on the bottom. So, uh, you know, you just tilt the thing forward and unscrew three screws and then, you know, pop chips in or out as, as you see fit always with the computer off. Um, or at least it should be on the iMac in the studio or in the office, the retina iMac, which is newer than this one, there's a Ram door on the back of it, right above the power uh, cord in, you know, where you plug power in and, and there's no screws though. There is a push button release to, to pull, to pop the, the door open. And that push button is obscured by the power cable. So nice. you cannot push the button with the power cable in. So you have to really be intentional about popping RAM in and out with this computer on because uh, you'd have to like pop the door open by pull. You'd have to pull power out, pop the door open and then plug power back in and turn it back on if you really wanted to uh, to do this. But it's a cool little thing. It's got <laughs> like it's got like a little lever in the entire RAM um, uh, assembly, like chassis sort of swings out and you plug RAM in. But uh, but it's good to keep people from doing um, the wrong thing, which is plugging stuff in to the motherboard of a running computer. When I was uh, when I was fixing w Windows machines in 1995, maybe 96 at this point, um, you know, prior to that, there, there was no plug and play. Right. So uh, you couldn't just plug something into the computer and have it work. You had to set what IRQ, what interrupt it was going to be on, what, what memory address it was going to be addressable at and, uh, and all of that stuff. And so you had to look in the, whatever it was, and it wasn't the device manager, but you had to look and figure out what was open and then use jumpers on the cards to set things or whatever. And that was true no matter what kind of card you were plugging in. So, uh, and then Windows 95 introduced plug and play where essentially the, the hardware was built to talk to the operating system when it was plugged in. And it would come up with, you know, where it could live. And then the OS would tell it and it would move it automatically. So it was great. You just get something, you plug the card in. So, um, so I was, I was doing that for this woman and we were sitting at her computer and we kind of looked and just made sure everything looked good in windows. And, uh, and you know, and then I had to like, she had a tower cause that's the only kind of computer that existed back then. If you didn't have a laptop and, uh, and it was, you know, Windows machine, but it was running 95. And, and so I went around the back and I unscrewed the, the case and, you know, pulled the case off and all this stuff and uh, unscrewed the slot cover and plugged the new U.S. Robotics plug and play modem in. And I hear the customer say, of course, I'm not looking at the screen at this point. You know, she's on the other side of the desk. I'm like, you know, digging around at the computer. And I hear her say, new hardware found. As soon as I plug the card in, I hear her say this. And then I realize the computer is running. Uh, and so she says, wow, I didn't, uh, I didn't know you could do that with the computer on. And my response was, 
Well, you know, not everything can be done that way, but, uh, but with this one, it works, you know, and it's fine. Yeah. That was almost an expensive day for Dave, but, uh, but it worked out just fine. But yeah, don't repeat that mistake. Don't plug anything into your computer with the, uh, you know, why shouldn't you be able to plug and unplug things with the power on? I mean, you could do it with hard drives. Why, Why can't you do it with other stuff? Yeah. I know. That well, actually that's the wasn't thing. always the case with hard drives, but most hard drives these days uh, are hot swap. Well, yeah. At yeah. least the ones in a NAS. Right. Well, that's the thing is, yeah. And and evidently this motherboard was totally fine with, you know, this thing just yeah. magically appearing. And the problem would be is if I, you know, didn't put it in at the right angle and, and shorted one pin, yeah. you know, I mean, that, that would have been the, the big issue. I, I mean, I never did that again, but... Um, yeah, I think I did that once too, and yeah. to tell about it. Yeah, but it was like when she said "new hardware found," Ooh. it was like you know my blood pressure shot up, and it was like, uh-huh. "All right, game face, game face, game face." You know, <laughs> it's all good, no harm, no foul. <laughs> it was good. it was good, but anyway, so I'm happy to be uh, at 32 gigs of RAM on these machines, and it seems like I needed it. I mean, I'm at I'm now using you know almost 20 gigs on this one, so. I mean, you know, it's, I'm running Safari and it's using nine gigs of RAM with like three tabs open. So, you know, Safari's got some memory leaks. Yeah, well, so, Safari leaks memory like a sieve. I mean, come on. Yeah, exactly. So really, why did I need more memory? Safari. That's the answer, folks. How could I need this much? I mean, I, I literally have four tabs open. Do I have some window open with like, you know, load up, fill up the RAM.com on it or something? No, nothing. I don't get it anyway. So there you go. It's uh, it just, it, you know, I didn't really think I needed more Ram in my machines, uh, but decided that I should do it because the prices were right. And uh, as it turns out, I might have. So there you go. If anybody has any ideas on that, let us know. You want to talk to us about Joe, John? Yeah. Joe's got a weird one. I think. Right. I'm not sure what to think about this and the title of it. Is recovery partition missing in OS 10 El Capitan? But I don't think it really is. But Joe says, I noticed recently that booting with Option Active no longer presented my recovery partition on my MacBook Air. Interestingly, my iMac at home, however, did with both running the latest version of El Capitan. It bugged me. In doing some research, I found a new, I guess new to Joe, command it actually booted directly into the recovery partition, which I had never heard mentioned on the show before. I tried it, and sure enough, the recovery partition is there and intact. So I'm not sure if El Capitan did something different or if I have an issue with the MacBook Air, but at least I know how to start it. I thought it'd be worth mentioning. All right, so the feedback for Joe. So Joe, hats off to you, man, because what Joe was doing was a non-standard way of getting into recovery. Right? Yeah. And then he was actually activating what is known as the startup manager. And what is that, you may ask? And I'm going to tell you. Well, the startup manager is what you see when you boot and you hold down the alt key or the option key. Same thing. Yeah. Um, so number one, you found a, a cool feature. And this is a feature that uh, some people may need to use uh, if you want to see a list of all the potential devices that your computer can boot from. Uh, when you're troubleshooting, you may need to do that. So that's a cool thing. But then I was like, well, you know, that's kind of weird because 
one of my machines uh, is that I recall the last time I ran the startup manager, one of my machines, I saw the recovery partition and the other one I didn't. I'm like, why is that? And you know, I don't know if I quite have the answer yet, Dave. Yeah. Because I tried it on one machine and I didn't see a, tr- you know, it'll be named something like recovery dash 11 dot whatever dot whatever. And I want to shit I saw it and the other I didn't. I'm like, why is that? And then I looked at the two machines and I thought I had the answer, but now I don't think I do, Dave, is that one machine had file vault on and the other does not. Mm. I'm like, huh, well, that's kind of weird. Well, you know what? Let me turn on file vault on the machine that is showing. And I thought it was on on, this, on, on my mini, but it wasn't. I'm like, well, let me turn on file vault and see if recovery still appears in the startup manager. And sure enough, it didn't. I'm like, oh, well, I must have answered the question. So I asked them, well, do you have file vault on on one of these and not on the other? And he's like, no. <laughs> but what he did show me was a list of his disks. So I, I think I think I have an answer to this. So the main point here is that there are two features you can take. So the thing that he found that he considers new is actually the correct way to get into recovery, which, as we mentioned, he said, you don't doesn't recall us talking about this. I'm almost certain we've talked about it, Dave, but we're going to talk about it again. But yeah, holding down command R is the proper way to get into recovery. Um, yeah, it had me scratching my head because the thing is, um, his what he's seeing is not consistent with what I'm seeing, Dave, and that neither of my machines now I will I see recovery if I go to the startup manager because you have to. Because because you have to decom- you have to decrypt first, is that right? No, I don't. I don't. I don't know. Huh? I think what it could be though, because then he gave me a list um, that you'll get. Uh, so if you go to uh, if you go to the Apple menu about this Mac, and then you click on System Report, the thing is, you will see a different view of your disk. Uh, typically, what I click on is SATA SATA Express because that's what I have in this one machine. Sure. If you click on that. You're then going to see your drive, uh, but then what you'll see at the bottom of the list is you'll see the different volumes. And for example, what I see on mine is EFI disk 0s2, which is the main drive, and then recovery HD. So that's where you look to see the different partitions. Um, There's another place you can look that gives you a different view, Dave, and, and I think this is what he was describing to me. If you go to storage, that's also in the hardware category, you'll see a different thing, and he then read off something and it indicated a logical volume group. Oh, that's, that's, uh, that's file vault. That's whole disk encryption for sure. But I think is that you may also, so the thing I think is once something is under, under the category of a logical volume group, and this is not the only time I've seen this, Dave, that you, you will also see a logical volume group if you have a fusion drive. So logical volume group is basically the file system is doing something clever. And I think the two clever things that the Apple file system will do that engages a logical. Vo- so I don't think yep. you'll see a logical volume group with just a regularly formatted drive, but you will see it if it's either encrypted or if it's a or, fusion drive. Or a fusion so I'm drive. Wondering, no, you're totally right. Yeah. That's so right. I'm wondering if that, is, because I don't have a fusion drive. So I'm wondering if that may be the reason that he's not seeing recovery. Um, Oh. So if anybody has any additional information on that, so, so, so what we learned here in a, a kind of roundabout way, uh, well, what we just offered here is how you should be able to get into recovery on any machine. Right. 
Right. He was getting into it kind of by accident, which it's kind of cool, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Huh? Uh, yeah. Uh, your, your guess is as good as mine. And it caused me to review my system settings and realize I didn't have file vault on my mini, which yep. I should have. Yep. So I think everybody should have file vault on, especially if you have an SSD. I, I agree with that. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, you know, I set it up for my dad right on uh, on the new MacBook Pro I told you about last week. And the the only problem is if you reboot the machine, it by default anyway, asks you to for the password for your user account password to decrypt the drive immediately. Right. And then it boots and then does whatever you told it to do to auto log in or not, you know, along those lines. And it's fine, except um, if I'm working on the machine, he's got to sort of deal with it, which is, which is fine. I mean, as soon as I explained to him why it was, he's like, Oh, okay, I get it. Um, But if I'm working on the machine remotely and I go to reboot it, I've got to be very, very careful uh, there is a way to tell it to auto decrypt on the next reboot, but, um, yes. but you know, I can't just like, I have to stop and think about that. Like, Oh yeah, I got to do the secret handshake. Otherwise this isn't going to work. So yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. So anyway, all right. Um, two more questions here. We're going to go to Fred because I would love to hear your advice on this. I feel like this is one of these things that might be of interest to more than just Fred. Fred says, uh, I have about 50 VHS tapes that I would like to transfer from VHS to media files on an external drive. Some of the tapes are not on DVD. I was wondering if Roxio's VHS to DVD converter would be a good tool to use. It appears that it will do this, but uh, the trick then is getting it into iTunes. So yeah, so Roxio's VHS to DVD converter is essentially taking your movies and inputting them. It, it comes with a, a USB dongle to then plug into your, your VHS player. So it's, it's digitizing the video and then its default workflow is to then burn it at, to a DVD and also chunk it up so that it fits properly on a DVD and all of that. But it will also convert it to pretty much anything else you would want, including putting it into iTunes. So I, I think this software would be frankly be perfect for, for you because it comes with all the stuff you need to sort of slurp from your VHS player. And then, and then you can take it from there. So you can create, you know, um, movies that are readable by iTunes or QuickTime or, or anything you want at that point. I think, I think you're going to be fine with this. So, but if anybody else has any thoughts on it, uh, please, you know, send them in and uh, John, if you've got them now, but you know, happy to hear from him. What's VHS? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, it. You know, it's it's a um, it's. It, it, he's not alone. There's. I think there's a lot of people. I think I just book. read an article that yeah. the the last company that made VHS devices stopped making them mm. because no one uses them anymore. Yeah, but you know, you might have. I mean, certainly, you know, I know I have a ton of stuff on VHS that I really should archive off. Uh, because really, well, yeah, I mean, old, you know, like, well, I mean, I mentioned computer nerds earlier. We did a bunch of TV commercials, um, for them. It was the first TV advertising I ever did, you know, and, uh, it would be cool to have that stuff, you know, just for posterity, you know, I think my parents still have some stuff on uh super eight. I think it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, and that, you know, that stuff's not going to last forever. So if you want to save that stuff, as you know, family memories or career memories or whatever it is, um, 
it's kind of important. Think about it sooner than later. So that's why I wanted to, to squeeze that one into the show. And then, uh, I think we have time for Chuck. Let's, let's see. I may regret this, but, uh, time-wise I may regret this, but I think we'll be okay. Um, he says, my wife has a new MacBook Air that we purchased this spring. I'm using a two-year-old MacBook Air. Our systems and software are the same. She has a slow response time to her web links using Safari. I thought she was imagining the problem, but after a couple of days of her voicing concern, we set up side-by-side -side and clicked on the same sites in unison. We're using Yahoo Japan as she accessed that regularly. The top page loaded in close to the same time as do sites directly via a Google search. But in going to one of the Yahoo News links... Her time to open was significantly slower than mine. Mine was already open and her progress bar was still inching along the window. We compared Safari preferences. The only difference was her use of Safari autofill for website logins. We turned that off. No difference. Further in our matching speed test, we weren't able, we weren't accessing a website that required a sign in uh, in the first place. She's also having the same issue with Firefox. We compared network settings, DNS proxies, etc. They are the same. So um, I instantly thought of DNS, right? And I know you said you tested that. So, so let's rule out a couple of other things and then maybe let's look at DNS again. Um, what happens if you both launch the terminal and issue uh, ping space www.apple.com and then press enter? What that's going to do or should do is start showing you a line by line, one second uh, spaced in between each of them showing you how long it takes for that computer to send and get a response from www.apple.com. And Apple, that site is set up to do this for you. Um, it's set up to do this. I don't know if they'd set it up for you, but it is. it does allow pings and it will respond to pings. So it's a good one to test. It's going to give you an answer. There's going to be a whole lot of stuff on that line. The last thing, uh, you know, kind of on the rightmost side of that, of each line that comes across is the amount of time that it took to get that packet all the way round trip. And it's going to be measured in milliseconds. So take a look at that. If, you know, one of them is 20 and one of them is 30, that's not a huge deal, even though, yes, it's 50% difference. It's only 10 milliseconds. But if one of them is 20 and the other is 400 or one is reporting, um, you know, that it's got uh, it's missing re returns and that sort of thing, if one's getting packet loss and the other is not, that indicates that you've got a problem with perhaps the wireless network. Um, or, you know, something networking wise is wrong there. Control C will stop that listing, by the way, um, just so you don't, you're not stuck with it forever. So um, that's the first thing I would test. And I'm going to assume that that's going to be okay, but let's rule that out before we start driving ourselves crazy. Assuming the pings are normal, like I said, I just can't stop thinking about DNS because that sounds like what you're talking about here is the... Um, the time it takes to do the lookup can be the problem. Now, proxies, you also mentioned, can get in the way of this. If you have proxies set to be automatic um, and it's looking for, waiting for a response from a proxy server that doesn't exist, that can also slow things down. But since you're seeing this in Safari and Firefox, I don't think it's proxy because they both deal with that in a different way. You configure Safaris in your network settings. You configure Firefox's proxy in Firefox, it is a separate setting, so it shouldn't be impacted by this. Back to DNS. My thought and the test would be, I know it looks like she's getting the same DNS server that you are, but let's force you 
or at least force her to use a different one and maybe force you both to use the same just for the, the purposes of a test. Go into system preferences network, go to whatever device it is. I assume Wi-Fi. go to advanced and go to DNS and manually add in a single entry of 8.8.8.8. Uh, and then uh, close that window, hit apply and go try your tests again. That will use Google's DNS of 8.8.8.8 and will certainly rule out or in whether or not this is a DNS issue. And if that doesn't work, oh, I don't know. So we, we'll test the DNS. What do you think, John? I'm with you in that, you know, it could be. I actually had this happen one time. I had inadvertently at one point manually set the DNS on one of my machines and not the other. And mm. then I noticed that they were acting different. And I verified the setting. And, you know, the place that you said is the place to go. You go to your network interface, advanced DNS. Well, first, I, I just went to the TCP IP panel and I looked and I'm like, oh, wait a second. The entry in DNS yeah. is, is not what I expected. <laughs> oh, I know another. T- uh, yeah, there was another time I had another DNS head scratcher and it was actually because I manually set it on my router mm-hmm. thinking that was a good idea. And then I wanted to manually set it. But I think for whatever reason... No, but what, what, what I thought I had set manually on the computer was actually set on the router and it sure. was propagating because I'm like, how do I get rid of this? I don't want that setting. And it would just keep pushing this you know, value that I didn't want to the computer until I eventually realized, oh, that's because I told it to do that. Yeah, you okay, told let's it. Let's right. not do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So reviewing what each of your devices, your computers and your router have set for DNS is uh, useful as well. Yeah, I guess, I, I mean, you, you could, I mean, I'm with you that it's a network related thing. At, at first, I was thinking the problem could be, uh, you know, various browsers have ways of flushing the cache or clearing the history or something like that. At first, I thought it was maybe like a cookie or. Yeah, but two different, two di- totally In different browsers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but if you're talking two different browsers, then yeah. And then especially goes away, especially Firefox versus Safari, like Chrome and Safari both use WebKit. Right. So there's, you know, potentially some core stuff that could be impacted the same. But but Firefox is totally self-contained, at least as far as that goes. So, yeah. All right, folks. Well, that's uh, that's where we're going to wrap it up today. We've told you how to get in touch with us, but there are a few of you I want to thank very specifically. And those are our premium listeners whose questions we answered today. That would uh, be starting back from the beginning of the show. Listener John. JP, listener Jim, Bobby, Alan, Greg, Chris, Dave, and Chuck. So thank you all for being premium listeners of Mac Geek Cab. Thanks to everybody in the chat room who is a premium listener, too. I know there are many, many of you there. Uh, you folks really, really help us out. And uh, you can sign up for premium at MacGeekCab.com. And, of course, if you are a premium listener, then you get to use premium at MacGeekCab.com to email us as well. I also want to thank Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com for providing all of the bandwidth to get the show from us to you and in our sponsors. Uh, this show, of course, sponsored by Bushel at Bushel.com slash MGG where you get a free account for life with three devices. Uh, Gazelle at Gazelle.com Smile at SmileSoftware.com slash Geek Otherworld Computing at MaxSales.com, Barebones Software at Barebones.com, and Casper at Casper.com slash MGG. 
Thanks so much, everybody. Thank you, John. A fun show. Hey, uh, John, what do you have to uh, what do you have to say before we? Oh, before we sign I got one thing to say. You know what, Dave? No, but you and I almost got in trouble here. We did. A friendly reminder: if your certificates are about to 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 expire, renew them so they don't expire. Because I almost forgot about ours, Dave, and and we almost got caught. Made up.